Ich flexe. Ich flexe mich in die Stadt, durch die Stadt. Ich flexe mir die Stadt zurecht. How can we collectively experience feminist spatial practices despite physical distance? Femark has designed this audio walk for times when physical distancing seems to be the only response to the spread of COVID-19. Begin by choosing a place you can see not far from you. When you reach this place, start by standing still. Allow your mind to sense the weight of your body. Where are your anchor points? Feel your muscles stabilizing you. Your arms and hands are in the most comfortable position, resting easily at your sides, folded gently in front of you or at your back. In the stillness, remain relaxed and alert. As you begin moving, start at a slower pace than usual. Notice the sensations while you're moving. Heaviness, lightness, pressure, tingling, energy, even pain if it's present. This panel of sensations creates a rhythm a dance of streams and flows while you move forward. Hanging chaos. The space in which we live can be seen through different perspectives. Space can be a place of meeting, a place of fear, a place of resistance. Environments are designed, but by and for whom? We understand listening as a critical practice an active practice that develops and enhances awareness. Listening, understood as a point of departure for relational processes and a point of departure for conversation for yourself and with others. What can listening to other people's stories do with us? How can we bring a spatial and collective aspect to listening? Can listening be understood as a collective spatial practice? Through their different projects, Femark has learned that you don't need to build walls to create space. During our journey today, we will explore different perceptions of space, as well as practices of doing space collectively, showing alternative ways to occupy. Our journey today will be about an hour long. You'll be given a couple of instructions on how to move that you can follow if you like. Whenever there's no instruction given, please move as you wish. Where are you now? Keep moving. Do you see people around you? Many of them are just a few. Maybe no one at all? Keep going. 
Who's visible on the streets? Who isn't? Why? My name is Kerstin Hohneit and I'm a visual artist and I mainly work with a moving image. Today I would like to talk about one of my projects which is called Position One. It's an ongoing project. It started in 2007 or the context of the project started in 2007 when I moved house. I tried in 2007 a very, for me, unique new technology out, which was called Google Earth, to discover my new surrounding. And when I used Google Earth more or less the very first time to discover a neighborhood, I made this observation that Google Earth seemed to work like the very beginning of photography, meaning that only things got captured that didn't move meaning people at the traffic light were captured, cars that were waiting at the traffic light were captured, and in this particular new neighborhood, sex workers that were waiting for clients. And this phenomena that really kind of stuck in my mind and I couldn't drop it, A, it kind of for me really exposed the presence of the sex workers, which are maybe in a, in a daily life not that present, because there were really totally empty streets and basically only occupied by sex workers. And the second time, as I define myself also as some kind of female body, it made me think about how I move around being read as a female body, not always, but uh, in general, um, in urban space and how I adapt to the space with all those conditions a female body experienced during the life. And I just really admired this chutzpah of those sex workers. I just thought, okay, they're just standing there no matter what. And I find myself until now, not so much since I've done that project, but still kind of a bit uncomfortable in public space when I don't seem to have a purpose. So meaning waiting for somebody who is late or aren't early. So this condition seems to be very, very deep that me as a female body needs some kind of excuse that I feel the urge to communicate with my environment why I have this or the allowance to actually just hang out here. So that probably that experience also share others. You wait for somebody, you look way more often on your watch than necessary, for example, or you're doing weird gestures of waiting, whatever that might be. Yeah, I just couldn't drop this observation. And that led me to invite several performers in different cities, female performers and female with a Sternchen with a little star at the end, to ask them if they would be willing to, first of all, find a spot they would like to occupy for a certain amount of time and most importantly, just occupy it with their presence without big gestures or anything, without a banner, just by being there with no purpose. And I did that in Berlin, Chicago, Sheffield, Montreal. And like I said, it's an ongoing project. Yeah, it's tickling a lot of other interesting side topics I think one of them that's also why this project is a tiny bit on hold is for example what defines a female body this is where it gets tricky already 
So what those different performers experience, which is quite interesting for me, and which united them more or less, everybody experienced it as pretty uncomfortable for different reasons. Either the neighborhood they on purpose chose, for example, in Chicago, was a neighborhood where you actually don't walk particular as a female connoted body you just don't walk there because it's dangerous way less kind of exciting but very common uncomfortable feelings were caused by the fact you just for some reason even if you're standing in the middle of the pavement you seem to be invisible and people literally run you over even when you kind of you know try to really whatever it takes claiming the space and yeah, so that kind of, of course, encouraged me to continue because I thought I, I kind of tapped on something there. There's something, something is there uh, that, that needs to be uh, further explored. Of course, I did also a tiny bit of research and uh, there's, for example, a book written that is called The Invisible Female Flaneur, which is a book written about the absence of the figure of the female flaneur in French literature in the 19th century and why that is. And of course, one of the theses is in a patriarchal society, you just can't allow yourself being that present and taking that much space. I mean, we, we all know from experience in public transport or in any urban condition and spaces and settings that it seems to be certainly easier, which makes totally sense, for male red bodies to just own space. And of course, for women, it's still not of course, but it's it's kind of actually quite sad uh, that there's a book written from the 19th century and we write the year 2020 and things haven't really changed that drastically. Why this project is a bit on hold is also that I still haven't figured out how to kind of leave the so-called Eurocentric or Western world, mainly the Western art world as well. And of course, inviting other performers from, from elsewhere to participate in that project because that puts everybody in a very awkward situation. So first of all, what is what would be a different cultural context? <laughs> this is where it starts already. Just the word different is actually kind of unbearable in that context. And also we have to acknowledge that societies in, in other contexts are also working different. And so we have, we have the gender dimension, we have a cultural dimension and all the politics that are woven around it make it not that easy to endlessly continue that project. And I'm, I'm very, very happy and uh, glad to now be able to introduce this project and make you all kind of maybe think about it and collectively and push it on a bit. So, yeah, let's push it on. And um, I would very much like to invite you today to participate in some kind of particular or special format I developed for this audio walk. I rewrote the instructions and I would just yeah communicate those with you now. Please listen carefully. So first of all, you should find yourself a spot in the nearest surrounding that you would like to claim for a short moment of time. And once you spotted something out, then please move to that place. And very important, make sure that you will be safe during your performance of occupation. For example, don't get run over by a car. 
If you found your spot, now try to arrive. Stay comfortable. And if it's difficult for you to stand up, of course, you can also sit down. Have a look around and feel your body and its present in this new environment. And again, please try to arrive. Now, if you're ready, start squatting the spot. Squat the place with your presence and find the posture that represents your claim. And those gestures or the gesture doesn't have to be big. Try to avoid to be read as somebody who's waiting. So don't look at your phone or your watch. There will be a sound signal that lets you know when this exercise is starting and when it's over. And still, concentrate on your posture of claiming. During your occupation, give yourself room for thoughts and feelings. Try to figure out what's different to just waiting somewhere. How do people react? Is it difficult to claim that space? Maybe even uncomfortable? Well, that's it. I hope you enjoy this experience.
How do you feel? Start moving again when you're ready. Are you comfortable moving around here? We want you to feel safe wherever you are. Let's see if you can find some place that helps you with that. What would such a space feel like? Or maybe it's not a space, but a situation, a practice, a way of being. Do you know of a space that makes you feel accepted, where you can be without fear or judgment? A space where you can feel yourself? Have you been there? Focus on yourself. Look at your arms, your fingertips. Where would you feel good out here, all of you? If you found a space that feels safe, do whatever you like. Listen with us to this work called Amansi by Mandla. She made this piece about Berlin and how she felt in it.
an expert taken from my journal, written during the first time I was in Berlin. Last night I had the worst panic attack I've had all my life. I've had plenty before and I usually know what to do. How to keep calm and how to breathe. Last night was really really something else. I was really terrified. I didn't know who to call. I had no one to call. It was really scary. I'm writing these down cause I don't know where else to put them. I've been in Berlin for about a week and I've been having the most tumultuous time. Being clear, black and visible is something that's so hard to navigate even in a more seemingly open place like Berlin. No one understands how hard it is for us to breathe. How hard it is for us to wake up and exist to be ourselves when the whole world is telling us not to I've had some of the worst discriminative encounters in this town in comparison to anywhere else I've been so far from being pushed shoved kicked followed spat on physically and mentally harassed Last night it really dawned on me that this is the rest of my life and this is how it's going to be. That was tough to realize. I was mad. I felt angry. I felt frustrated and I felt... robbed. Robbed of some of the simple pleasures in life like walking down a road and not being slurred at. I am so mad. My cis counterparts don't have to go through this. Ever. Safety in who you are is nothing they'd ever have to second guess. I'm sorry if this sounds naive, because I understand the gravity of my identity in the world we live in and the spaces we're provided with. I just feel like being in Berlin has really opened up my eyes to what my life is going to be from now on. And this is truly the world we live in. As this dawned on me it got harder and harder and harder for me to breathe. I had no one to call. It's gonna get harder from here on out, I know. I'm probably never going to be able to breathe as easily or as freely as I've felt before because the weight of my identity will continuously press on my lungs, while I fight to stay visible and stay safe. I hope everyone is doing okay, and will continue to be okay. Until we are, 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 until we are,
Take a deep breath. Do you have spaces where you can be yourself freely? Let's take another moment. Listen to the children playing. Let's find a new space to discover. We're outside on the sidewalk like so many other times before. How do you usually move through public space when you want to get somewhere? Do you hurry? Do you rush between destinations? We do, oftentimes. So now we'd like to invite you to do the opposite and to move with us as slowly as you can. We have a couple of minutes. This is time that we can use to focus on the space between our footsteps, to look for details that we might miss otherwise. It's not important where we arrived to at the end. Let's just start moving, but very slowly. And let's observe what's happening around us as we approach Zoe Partington and Joss Boys in London. They'll tell us about how they explore new ways of working in architecture education and practice and how different bodies inform their teaching. Hi. I managed to, uh, Zoe should be up front. 
over 10 years ago, we set up something that at that time was called um, Architecture Inside Out, with the idea that disability access and inclusion were still really badly dealt with within architectural education and practice, and that by using the creativity of disabled artists, we could really provoke new ways of working. Able-bodied people can survive in any terrain in a way, so actually as a designer, um, if you create not a very good design, non-disabled people can still use that building and that space. They might not like it, but you're definitely excluding disabled people and you should be thinking about you know, the 6%, the 8%, the 10%, because if you get that right and you work to make sure that those people can access it, then it will work for everybody and it would actually be better for everybody. It is about this everyday thing, you know, getting to the shops, catching the train, the bus, the, you know, walking around the corner, going to the pub, you know, going out clubbing, doing all these things that everybody else does, really. And I've just been developing training. Um, it was museum moderators, really, and people that work in museums to think how disabled people coming into the museum environment might work in different ways. So I started to look at how they as a training exercise really about them being different characters and those characters not necessarily being disabled people but being somebody that was carrying very heavy shopping somebody walking through the building incredibly slowly people moving very fast people hopping people sliding along the floor and the one that seems to work really well is people moving through the building very slowly so people start to actually engage with the space a lot more they begin to understand what's not working in that space. They begin to understand that you might be left out from the group because you can't move as fast as everybody else. So it, it just starts a whole new conversation from thinking how these things don't work to thinking, actually, I, I've, rather than rushing through the space, I've begun to see that textures or the smells or the environment, there's things that are really interesting here, observing other people's quite interesting, or there are places to sit down that may have not been designed into the building but actually we could design more in quite interesting ways to make the building more um, better for everybody really. It's also about people realising that disabled people aren't just wheelchair users. It's a huge spectrum of disabled people um, with different impairments and, and that means more people in society have access and need to make sure that it's right really. just to reiterate that point about because it's very easy for people just to want to put disabled people in these different functional categories it's like this is what you need if you use a yeah. wheelchair or this is what you need if you're blind or this is what you need if you're autistic and by doing these kinds of activities these kind of character scenarios you're not performing any of those you're not performing a category but you're performing a set of a way of being in the world which is mm. um, connects to a whole range of, of impairments and connects to um, the enjoyment of difference part of the thing about the, uh, the disordinary architecture project is to try and think of ways if you if you argue that you should start from difference rather than add difference on at the end as a kind of artificial thing is what does that mean in terms of the kinds of teaching that you do the kinds of activities that you do the workshops how it affects how mm -hmm. people literally learn the subject again not just you need to know this about disabled people but how you think about the world and and mm -hmm. your place and the place of other people in it um and 
some of the language that I use again from disability studies is around the idea of fitting and misfitting rather mm. than you know able-bodied and disabled that different sorts of mm. environments act in different ways in different contexts it's always relational it's always about who you're with what the space is like, mm. what the attitudes are like, all those things come together in a relational way to disable or enable particular groups of people and not others. If you think about misfitting as a very creative thing, if you're designing to enable people not to misfit, then that's, that's a real creative generator. That's mm. not a problem. That's not a kind of leftover. It's what you start from. Yeah. So you don't, you don't get into this numbers game like it's not very important because there aren't many people who use a wheelchair. Mm. You, you get into what's the neuro and biodiversity, the richness of it, the value of it. I think that what we do is, is a form of feminist practice, but I don't think that's a way we ever talk about it. And that's partly because it's almost like you can go beyond some of the things that we got very caught up in in the 70s and the 80s. The things that were really important were to being able to just work out what it meant to say that space was gendered or racialized or queered or, you know, all those things, or disabling. You know, there was a kind of interest in that. But I think there's been some really fantastic stuff by contemporary disability studies scholars and disabled activists and artists which is around the idea that that we're all after the same thing it is all about you know the expression is transformative social spatial and material justice and the notion of justice rather than access and inclusion for me is a really powerful one what you have to do in order to get there is exactly what Zoe was talking about I think which is about what are the everyday practices and spaces and relationships that make things gendered or make them uh, discriminate against particular people, dis- disable particular people, and that—that's across the board. You know, you can't just say, "Oh, well, women." You know, certain things will happen to certain sorts of women to do with their place in society. But once you start cross-cutting it with impairment, with sexuality, with race, it's kind of—it feels to me like it's better to look at the practices and see what they're doing to all of us. If you like, you can move at your own pace again. If you enjoyed moving slow, just keep doing that. We'll be staying outside while we listen to Marie from Chapu. Chapu is a special interest group founded by women of color in Linz. They have a TV show in which they tell us what community shops are for. Hi guys, willkommen zu Chapos Sendung Lebenswelten. Wir wollen uns anschauen, ja, weshalb es Community Shops braucht, weil in plurale Gesellschaften ist die Diversität natürlich hochgeschrieben. Wir sind hier in einem Indian Shop, aber jetzt schauen wir mal zum Shopbesitzer und fragen ihn einmal, wer ist er und was hat ihn motiviert, hier einen Indian Shop zu eröffnen? Guten Tag, Jutla Dilbagen. Viele fremde Leute, die brauchen einfach eigene Länder, so Gewürze, 
Gemüse zum Leben, die Kosmetik und wir besorgen, was die einen Mensch brauchen. Das ist ein Motiv. Jeder Mensch braucht mit eigenen Lebensmitteln oder eigene Art, dann wir besorgen, wo da Getränke bekommen und wo da Bohnen bekommen, welche Gewürze, was wir brauchen. Und welche Produkte gehen gut? Lebensmittelgeschäft, Reis, Mehl, Linsen, Bohnen. Und was unterscheidet jetzt zum Beispiel der, den Indien-Shop von anderen Geschäften? Wie meinst Ja, also Reis und Bohnen kriege ich ja auch im Supermarkt. Wieso kommen die Leute hierher? Die Qualität und das, die, das bisschen was andere vom Supermarkt. Die sind die Guava Fresh. Okay. Also frische Guaven, schauen wir mal. Die duften auch ein bisschen. Guineo. Und hier ist die Jam aus Afrika. Das sind die Yellow Planten. Hier ist die grüne Planten, dass die Leute Gemüse jeden Tag brauchen. Kommen Sie bitte hier mit. Mhm. Das sind hier alles in die Gewürze. Die alles in die Gemüse, äh, Gewürze, alles, was sie jeden Tag die Leute brauchen. Das sind unten so eine kleine Snacks ist zum Naschen. Dann gibt es natürlich jede Menge Frischprodukte, wie Paner, Paner ist Tofu, Huttelkäse, sagt der Chef. Das hier ist Paner, Huttelkäse und da macht man eigentlich ganz viele vegetarische Gerichte damit. Man hat hier die Möglichkeit, Geld zu überweisen, egal wohin. Es gibt viele Möglichkeiten und wir bekommen erklärt, wie das funktioniert. Wir haben drei verschiedene Firmen, Ria Money Transfer, Aftav Grand Exchange und Moneygram. Das ist eine Money Transfer von kleinen Privatleuten zum Geldüberweisung von seiner Familie, Freunde, sowas. Sie kann 10 Euro bis 1000 Euro schicken, ist kein Problem. Also bis 1000 Euro? Nein, 1500 Euro ist alles erlaubt. Wie funktioniert das, dass die Personen, weil ich weiß zum Beispiel, die kriegen dann übers Handy dann das Geld, wie funktioniert das? Äh, das genau wie eine SMS bekommen vom Firma, eine PIN kommen. Wenn Sie gehen in diese PIN-Nummer, dann schauen Sie in Computer 1 Ihre Telefonnummer und PIN-Nummer, dann bekommen Sie ein Geld. Das bedeutet Mobile Money. Okay, die, und da gibt es dann in den Ländern vor Ort Stationen, so wie hier, ja. und dann kann man das Geld bekommen. Die viele verschiedene National. Dort gibt es ein kleines Geschäft, kleine Unternehmen, zum Beispiel Reisebüro oder eine Bank, oder ein Lebensmittelgeschäft, oder eine Telefongeschäfte, wo das sie Geld nehmen kann. Wir haben Adresse drinnen und die Kontaktnummer, Telefonnummer, welche Land, wo sie ein Geld bekommen, eine Adresse. Ähm, das war jetzt das Ende unserer Reise in dem Indian-Shop. Ich hoffe, es hat euch gefallen. Kommt hierher, probiert Sachen aus. Ja, sucht die Suchmaschine eures Vertrauen, um gewisse Rezepte zu finden. Es gibt ganz viele frische Produkte hier und man wird hier äh, sehr nett betreut. Zu guter Letzt, ich weiß nicht, wo die nächste Reise hingeht. Seid einfach mit dabei, wenn wir wieder eintauchen in neue Lebenswelten. Dankeschön. We'll be moving on, but please continue your journey.
The city's full of traces of history. Do you see them? Do you feel them? If you're on a street, keep moving to the next street sign nearby. Maybe there's no street sign, but other signs carrying names. What names do you see? Do you know the stories behind them? Keep going, but keep in mind all the names surrounding you. Naomi grew up in Berlin. She'll tell you more about her own experience walking down a particular road there, though this is a story that could happen in so many places, down so many roads, around the world. Ich bin jetzt im sogenannten afrikanischen Viertel auf der Lüderitzstraße. In dem Viertel gibt es viele problematische Straßennamen mit einer kolonialen Vergangenheit. Ich laufe die Lüderitzstraße langsam entlang. Sie ist wirklich sehr lang. Insgesamt gibt es hier 20 Straßenschilder, die den Namen des Kolonialverbrechers Adolf Lüderitz ehren. 20 Nadelstiche. Jedes Mal, wenn ich diese Straße durchquere. 20, 40, 60. Sie summieren sich und hinterlassen Wunden. Glücklicherweise gibt es schon seit Jahrzehnten Widerstand gegen diese schrecklichen Straßennamen, die Rassistinnen und deren Gräueltaten gedenken. Es gibt viele neue Namensvorschläge, die Umbenennung von der Lüderitzstraße, Petersallee sowie Nachtigallplatz sind schon genehmigt. Doch es werden immer wieder Ausreden gefunden, die Schilder doch nicht auszutauschen. Es hat sich außerdem eine BürgerInneninitiative gegründet von vielen weißen AnwohnerInnen, die wegen lauter Belanglosigkeiten die rassistischen Straßennamen beibehalten wollen und als Lösungsansatz lediglich die Umwidmung der Straßennamen vorschlägt. Die Lüderitzstraße ehrt dann nicht mehr den Verbrecher Adolf Lüderitz, sondern die nach ihm benannte Stadt Lüderitz in Namibia. Ich finde es unglaublich. Kannst du es auch nicht glauben? Jede Person, die an diesen Namen vorbeiläuft, wird mit der konstruierten weißen Dominanz konfrontiert. Wie kann es sein, dass es so viele Hürden gibt, um klar rassistische Straßennamen umzubenennen? Wie kann all das sein? In der Schule habe ich nichts über Enteignung und Unterdrückung bis hin zum Genozid von Nama und Herero gelernt. Zufall? Deutschland hat den Völkermord an Nama und Herero immer noch nicht als solchen anerkannt. Reparationskosten werden fällig und Mahnmale für über 60.000 Tote. Vernichtungskriege und Landenteignung verjährt nicht. Warum wird schwarzes Leid ignoriert? Wir sind im Jahr 2020 und diskutieren ernsthaft noch darüber, ob es rechtens ist, diese Straßen umzubenennen. Ich bin müde. Viele meiner Schwestern und Brüder sind müde. Ich zähle die Straßenschilder im Vorbeigehen mit. Jetzt habe ich mittlerweile fünf Stück hinter mir gelassen. Mein unwohles Gefühl nimmt langsam ein wenig ab. Ich beginne zu fantasieren, wie ich mit meinen Geschwistern die schrecklichen Namen übermale und schließlich die Straßenschilder umbenannt werden. Was für ein Gefühl das sein muss, sich den Stadtraum wieder anzueignen und schwarzes Leid wichtig und sichtbar zu machen und nicht weiße Bequemlichkeit über alles zu stellen und koloniale Kontinuitäten beizubehalten. Decolonize Germany.
Straßenschild Nummer 8. Was passiert jetzt? Ich sehe plötzlich den Straßennamen Cornelius Frederiks, eine sehr wichtige Figur des Nama-Widerstands. Es gibt so viele schwarze Vorbilder, gerade schwarze Frauen, mehr als genug, um all die Schilder umzubenennen. Aber nein. In Berlin, in ganz Deutschland und vielen anderen Ländern werden Mörder geehrt. Ich laufe weiter. Viele rassistische Schilder verschwinden hinter pinker Farbe. Euphorie kommt in mir auf. Ich fühle mich gut, muss aber im gleichen Atemzug an all die anderen problematischen Straßenschilder denken, die noch kenntlich sind. Doch wartet. Bleibt kurz stehen. Ich spüre ein leichtes Kribbeln in den Zehen und in den Fingerkuppen. Jetzt spüre ich das Kribbeln langsam auch in meinem Kopf. Sehr angenehm. Es öffnet sich eine Art Portal vor meinen Augen. Aus dem Portal werden Bilder von anderen Straßenschildern projiziert, die umbenannt werden müssen und die mit pinker Farbe überzogen sind, sodass ich die Namen nicht mehr erkennen kann. Niemand. Sie wurden verschönert. Are you in an open space? A public square? A place where people are passing by? A place where people can gather? Imagine this space. It's large and it's full of people. In fact, it's packed. It's warm and yours is one body breathing among others. It's 8th of March again. I'm meeting a friend with my mother on the Warschauer Brücke in Berlin. The day before, we were still working together on some posters. Women with green scarves have already gathered on the street. The green scarf is a symbol of the feminist movement in Argentina. Every year on the International Women's Day, I prepare to go out into the streets. Since two years, I have been going to the demonstration organized by the International Feminist Alliance in Berlin. It is a space for only women, lesbians, inter, non-binary and trans people. I perceive the space as an intersectional space, 
where the struggles of migrant refugee women, women of the diaspora, black, indigenous and of color, sex workers and other marginalized groups are being recognized. This year, the demonstration started with the performance of Las Desis and ended at the women's prison in Lichtenberg. Un violador en tu camino, also known as The Rapist is You, is a performance piece created by the Chilean feminist collective Las Desis, formed by Daphne Valdez, Sibila Sotomayor, Lea Cáceres, and Paula Cometa. performance, originally a theater piece, denounces not only violence against women and feminine identities, but also the complicity of the state. According to the collective, the police, the judges and the state are partly to be blamed for feminicides, rape and violent disappearances. In an interview they described the performance as an attempt to translate feminist theory into practice through visual and performative formats. It was performed on the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women on the 25th of November in 2019. After videos of the performance went viral, it has been performed not only in Latin America but also other countries over the world.
A veces me siento dividida entre dos mundos. Aquí donde vivo y allá donde nací. Sometimes no me I siento torn between two worlds. Here where I live and there where I was born. I feel neither from here nor from there. Living on borders and in margins, keeping intact when shifting in multiple identity. As Gloria Anseldúa writes in her book, Borderlands, is not always easy. It is like trying to swim in a new element, an alien element. As I walk in the Latinx block, it always feels surreal to be on the street. It is like having the feeling of leaving Berlin for a day. It is incredible to have a space where I can be as loud as I want in my mother tongue. Taking so much space as a migrant woman of color, together with others, is really empowering. We sing, we scream, we dance, we run. Even though the struggles why we go out are far from being resolved, I find it very strengthening for me to be on the street at this moment. Resistencia, resistencia, resistencia is a practice used by student movements in Latin America during demonstrations. Say the word four times, crouching down lower and lower as you say it. By the third time you say it, you're almost on the ground. Then, with all the power of those four words, you run. If you want, you can try it now. You're looking for a place to rest.
Is there a park nearby? Do you see any green near you? Or a piece of nature? Move in that direction. Is that space accessible to you, and can you take a rest there? If so, go and make yourself comfortable. Sarnt from the Und Thai Told Collective will now tell you the story of a park in Berlin where a community of Thai women gather during the weekends for gambling, cooking, chatting, exchanging advice. Why are those practices of public space important, and especially so for minorities? What did you find? A park, a lawn, a bush, maybe just a distant plant in a window? I want to just talk about migrant space. Usually grassroots initiated by migrants that later come to be gentrified and um, actually resold for, like, you know, until you take the core out and you resell the place. Um, and it's like, oh, this is the legendary migrant colorful place and gentrified. Formerly, it's called Poison Park. It's a green park area at the Fabelina Platz in Wilmersdorf. And usually, b- before Corona time, there were a lot of sort of Thai food stands um, or vendors um, selling not just Thai food, but also many variants of quote-unquote Asian foods there. And it's very kind of unplannable sometimes. There are a lot of them, sometimes they are not. On one hand, you know, you have the Thai migrant group. And you can divide this group into kind of two or three in all the aspects. So like one group would be the, the migrant, Thai migrants who don't have, um, what do you call it, give up a shine. Um, or basically they have no access to entrepreneurship and business um, possibilities. They, and they also put in a lower tax class or blah, blah. So they're not allowed to earn that much. But they also want their income because um, that means, you know, financial freedom so that means they really need a place where they can play with the gray area of not not whatever, you know. So that's a group that I really feel like I care because we need the space for them. Second group is people who, also Thai migrants who at some point found their business partner and they have restaurants and Thai park selling is sort of kind of their side project thing, but also still produce a lot of it's not just income, but also they meet friends, and and it's also necessary for them to import ingredients and shipping and everything. It involves a lot of this migrant um, organization. You can do it with your friends; it's cheaper. And there are also like some, you know, some vendors or like Brazilians or like Cambodians, um, Vietnamese that they know each other with the Thai very well, and they drink beer together. Um, there's also a lot of um, groups of People who regularly go there who are not necessarily, quote-unquote, part of the ties, but, but you know, like um, the German husbands or just the German neighbors or some sort of other people of colors who just happen to live around there and they find it cute and chill. 
Yeah, and then other was just uh, visitors, students, researcher, artists, including us, and um, none of us belong to this sort of people who initiated this. And we were born in the time of you know 80s, so we we were born exactly when things start to move. So we just sort of trying to convey some message. I mean, in the beginning, I was also kind of not seeing the the complexities and and things underneath underneath the surface. And I was just seeing it more like kind of oh, what a nice thing that we can have like a kind of really spicy or sometimes rare stuff to eat. And um, until actually, un until I started um, to be involved in this project, that that I it got into me that there's something so much more in that. Yeah. Um, before the wall came down, you didn't need to have visa to come here, so you can stay here for three months. So, so a lot of people came and started on business, both males and females. Um, and then, and then, like after the wall, um, you know, the, the whole structure changed. You could not stay longer. I mean, you basically need visa. But also, people who live there before the wall came down, they need to. You know, they need to get through a certain process to become a proper citizen, and one of the main option is to marry someone. It's what some people call a femini feminization of migration. A lot of males who live here have to move back to their countries because they could not find anybody to marry, or they married somewhere else. And it was it, there were many females who got some German husbands. That that kind of led to you know um, the groups of Thai migrants here, which I would not say that all of them are from that. And um, actually, I've talked to some, and they were—they said that they were involved in such a process. And it's nothing that we should, you know, we should not stigmatize this. This was—it was, it was it, but they also, you know, they just met their friends. And um, I guess that was sort of kind of the beginning-ish of the what to be called Thai Park, that they just met their friends and gambled and exchanged foods. And um, it was really about that. Like they were just sort of hanging out in the park, and then. More and more people came. Yeah, during the 90s, it was it was transformed actually by by the media. Kind of when when some people start to realize that oh, there's so many foods sold and be exchanged here. So it kind of became you know sort of this like secret insights for people who visit West Berlin, and then it got boom in 2000 ish, and then then it became sort of this commercial type part that we come to know now. In the end, you know, as a migrant, you um, the difference is also that, like, um, you know, you don't you don't necessarily speak the language, and especially you don't know all the laws in German stuff. So you always need someone to give you advice. And um, what happened was also they create it was some sort of separation that migrants, not just Thai, but many migrants of colors, lack access to um, counseling as my advices. So they relied on each other, basically. Even after the war came down, someone to advise them, or even to find job opportunities, because also Thai restaurants started opening also after the war, a bit before the war, and so you know they exchanged and they also kind of they op also operated a lot of financial opportunities. It was just that I think the uh, I think the point was that the aspects of food came to 
over how you call overshadow this use of the park. I think at the end of 90s or 2000 ish actually, mm -hmm. but before that it was never really properly about food, like in a, on the priority. Yeah, it's also kind of indirect. Um, space occupation in a way because um, then you know the name the name of the place is called Poison Park, and this park was used, and I just discovered it was used also during the Nazi time, and it was originally used for other purposes in the past, um, way before Thai migration started. Like we uh, also have some postcards from the park um, back in 1910 or something, and it's really interesting how how the urban atmospheres changed. There was you no know, way so many trees and also like during Nazi time they destroyed most of the trees and they put like um you know what it's called national stones, some stein there and some some sculptures of Greek perfect body wrestling around. And all of these were destroyed after the war. Like I think it's also, you know, the use of space changed over time and what previously was perceived as nationalistic to something like migrant base and it's kind of subversive in a way yeah and then during corona time that like you know the food market aspect kind of faded off and actually there were really like a proper gathering just to meet and gamble and talk to each other and i think it's kind of nice but we also learn from that in a sense that you know corona time may be really Pose a big question: What the space means for people, and I think this this is precisely the point. But um, but yeah, so it's something that you know sort of parallelly goes between sort of commercialized aspect and the, the small, quiet, almost a little bit insider stuff that uh, that you know stays. And I also have to say that um, it's not just. The ties only is also like the other whatever diasporic migrants group who who gather and meet there, and not necessary for its sort of you know not necessary for commercialized aspect. I mean, they just meet to meet friends, they just meet to exchange advices, and they have some food next to them. And I think it's also very important that you know these even other migrants, not just Thai, they also need sort of space where they feel free to talk with their friends in their language and exchange what they think about the world. So it so become, becomes something more important, not just to Thais, but also to others. Look around. What are people doing in your surroundings? Is there anyone? Is there a group of people? What do they look like? How do they move? Are they sitting or are they standing? Are there options to rest? Are there shaded areas? How do you feel now? How does your body feel? What are the sounds of our environments? Do they harm us 
empower us, guide us? For Femark, these stories are the beginning of a new habit of listening. It is an ongoing attention to the stories of our environments through collecting their sounds. By listening as we move through space, we can collectively practice the making of those spaces and emancipatory experiences in them. Thank you for moving with us.